Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing, and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website, Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Independent Melbourne Radio 3 Triple R. On today's show, banked in traffic in grey light on Punt Road yet again, thought about those names from my childhood, my father's supposed friends. Abby, Charlie, Dennis, names tethered to flashes of memory, to photos, rooms, gestures, admonishments, strange excursions in cars to who knows where. Names that flared up every now and then. Who were these people and what did they know about my father that I didn't know? Maybe I could ask them what sort of person he had been. Who was he? What were the moments that survived? Out of fear, my father remained a mystery to me. I was afraid to unwrap the forgetfulness that held him where he was, vague, embalmed, harmless. That's how it all started. I didn't expect things to turn out the way they did. That's an extract from In Moonland, the long-anticipated second novel from award-winning author Miles Allenson. The book spans three time frames. In present-day Melbourne, a new father, his own relationship on the brink, starts seeking answers for his own father's ambiguous death 20 years earlier. In India in the 1970s, a man flees heartbreak back home and is drawn into Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh's ashram where he finds he can't escape his own dark past. And in the bleak climate-ravaged near future, a young woman grappling with a life-altering decision reunites with her estranged father. The book explores the desire for transcendence, the hidden narratives that course through generations, and a world barrelling towards its own destruction. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. Miles Allison joins me now to talk about his book and the craft behind it. Miles, welcome to Backstory. G'day, Mel. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure. I have to say, uh, this was, I found this book quite engrossing and I think sometimes it can be quite dislocating to read a book and then suddenly have the, the central character whisked away from you um, to go into another time frame. But I think you really have kind of woven this together in a way that feels really satisfying. I want to talk about uh, how you've ended up creating this book because I think you've spoken in other interviews about it being a quite uh, traumatic process uh, um, that spanned quite a few years and I think you know it's always great for people in this show to hear about the kinds of things that authors go through in creating books we get this beautiful you know wonderfully sort of um, perfect feeling item that we read and and everything feels right but that's not not how it works, Miles. Do you want to talk about where this uh, this kind of this book emerged from? Uh, yeah, that's true. It's not how it, it's not how it works at all. It's um, it's pretty it's pretty um, painful a lot of a lot of the time, and then you forget about that when the when the thing is sort of a finished product at the end, and you you forget all the all the suffering. But uh, yeah, the, the book took about six years, I suppose, to, to from sort of start to finish, um, and 
it was quite different in in various um, versions. I suppose the first version, the first sort of finished version that I thought I had, came in at about four years and was quite different and was just that first kind of narrative voice all the way through. Um, so I didn't have those kind of break, those kind of harsh breaks between perspectives that um, are there now in the in the finished object, the finished book. Um, but I did kind of like those breaks. I kind of liked them firstly because they they were written really deliberately so that each voice was quite different within a sort of different, um, from a different perspective, a different sort of tense. Um, but I liked the idea that they would be um, all, you know, not only super different but sort of um, not able to be consumed in the same way. You know, they were, they were, they were different people, but they were also, um, it was about those people not really being able to fully inhabit each other's lives and existences. And I also liked the idea that when they were over, when that section was over, they were over, you know, they weren't coming back. Mm. Except they were coming back in the form of how they're perceived by others. And I think that that's why there is such a, a sort of sense of satisfaction there because you get, you know, you get sort of three generations and I don't think it's giving away too much to say that the characters that are inter interconnected in this book are linked, um, you know, as in through family and through through the kind of connections of time while being very distinct characters. What's really interesting about this is that we get to see themselves, we get to see them from their own perspective and then from the perspective of someone who is connected to them in some way. And so you really do get this sense of how we're misperceived, uh, you know, by those <laughs> who we should be closest to. You really do capture that kind of discord or that lack of understanding at the same time about how interdependent we all are. I think there is obviously a bigger metaphor that we'll get into when we are looking at that. But can you talk a little bit about that aspect of it? Because really this book in its, you know, most um, obvious level is really about that kind of intergenerational inheritance that we get and that we don't fully understand and the desire to both somehow understand it and perhaps even transcend it. Yeah, Mel, that's so, yeah, so beautifully put. Maybe better than I could um, do it. But you're right. Like I was, I was um, interested in that. You know, that question, the the, the way things are carried across generations, um, both against our will and deliberately, and the way things are not carried, the way things are forgotten and and, and vanish. So that became sort of, I guess, the central kind of idea for me. This idea that. Um, you know, that memory is one way in which we are connected across time. Um, but there are different types of memories, for instance, and, and there are different places where those memories reside. And, and we know now, you know, how much the body holds um, from the past. And we know that um, trauma, for instance, is is carried across generations and is a type of memory that's not easily put down, you know, from one to the other. Um, I don't know. There was another thing I was going to say, but I've forgotten what it, what it was in regards to, in regards to that. Well, you, you beautifully captured the cyclical nature as well of, you know, this idea of being um, in some ways throughout family histories of seeing the same things. You could perhaps say mistakes being made or the same cyclical behaviours happening, uh, some of which are obviously due to 
you know, the, the inheritance of environment, some perhaps due to things that we can't quite put our finger on. And I think it's a really interesting one because uh, you have really managed to, to capture that. And I think to a certain extent, you know, the book is about that kind of lack of memory. Like perhaps if people did have the full picture, they could reconcile a little bit more with elements that they didn't fully understand. And you're giving us that in a way. Perhaps we can put that template on our own lives and have a sense of that person was just in their specificity, much much like us, perhaps I can let that go and have a different outcome. Yeah, no, absolutely. There, I mean, there's a sense in which the reader gets a little bit more knowledge than some of the, the characters, and so you're able to see the things that are just out of reach for them um, in some in some instances and the, and the sort of assumptions that they have to make about one another. But also they're never, even with, even with full knowledge, you're never really... Well, there really isn't any such thing as full knowledge. You're never really able to see anyone else, you know, perfectly clearly. You know, you're always seeing it through, seeing them through your own filters and your own your own assumptions and expectations and animosities and and um, disappointments and and that sort of thing. So, yeah, look, it was a um, it was a it was a book that I think that um, I wrote. Uh, Partly um, because, or partly through um, doing a bunch of my own therapy, I think you know, like it was a, you can sort of feel that, um, you know, that practice, that therapeutic practice in some ways, that the, the, the kind of gathering awareness of your own um, place within a long line of people who are all, you know, failing in different ways and succeeding in others, but that you know, that you're part of a lineage, I suppose. And and I suppose having my own child um, when I did, which which was sort of happening when I started writing this book, was a kind of concrete example of the way that um, we live across different times and that um, we carry things for other people as well. I want to talk a little bit about each of the characters and how you've you've kind of created them. You start out with Joe, who uh, isn't... We really don't uh, get a sense of him as a third-person character because we're very much in his perspective. We're in the first person, which immediately gives you a kinship with this character. You're right in... You know, you're empathising, you're, you're in this mindset, you're with Joe as he tries to come to terms with uh, something he's never really reconciled, which is his father's death. Was it an accident? Was it deliberate? Um, what made him do it? Why was he so angry? All these things have been bubbling around in, in Joe's mind um, and are now starting to affect his own familial relationship he's got a young daughter and he is growing more and more distant from um, his partner and in a way the preoccupation with his his father is is taking on that role so can you talk a little bit about the section it sort of strikes me as the one that that you perhaps had the most kinship with when you were writing it yeah you're right it was the most fun to write and it was the most you know that sort of first person narrative is is the one that I enjoy most, I think, I, you, there's a sort of sense in which you can, at least I can sort of d- feel like I can do anything, you know, like I can make kind of linguistic jumps in 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 a way that I sort of can't when I'm writing in the third person. You sort of have to be a bit stricter, I think, in my experience writing in the third person. So yeah, the first the first um, the first half of the book really is is told from Joe's perspective, 
Um, and as I was sort of saying earlier, that the the original kind of novel that I'd sort of, um, or the, the original draft anyway, was told entirely in his perspective, and each chapter was divided into a different encounter with a different one of his father's friends or old friends. Um, and I, I don't know why I thought that that was the best way to do it. I think I had this sort of weird kind of idea that that, that sort of very neat, symmetrical kind of um, form would, I don't know, would be kind of lovely or neat or something. But um, I sort of had to let go of that idea that I could control it so much. And I had to, you know, in, in drafts, I had to kill a lot of characters and, and, you know, just, like, throw away a lot of pretty good sentences. Writers are just brutal, aren't they? They're killing off things all the time to get to this stuff. Well, I think they'd rather not be. They'd much rather, <laughs> much rather keep them. But, yeah, ed- editors are probably brutal in some way. Yeah, so I, I feel like it's a really interestingly frustrating um, section in some ways. You are really caught up in this kind of, in the, I guess, uh, the narrative of, of the quest uh, as you're going through it, while at the same time, you know, this I, this faulty narrator um, is taking over. You're sort of seeing how he's wrecking his life and wanting to kind of hold him back from doing what he's doing, knowing where this is headed. Um, you know, he's he's asking all these questions of characters that give him pretty much nothing. He's sort of left with more questions uh, and yet uses that to to propel him onto the next level and the next level. He's just getting these little little bits, never quite a picture of, of anything that, that is like his father. And at the same time, you're feeling like while he's searching for his father, he's receding from the people in his, li- in his own life. Yeah, no, that's true. And I think, I mean, I think in some ways that's true, that the way that, the way that people want to speak about the past is often... You know, people often don't want to go back there and, and sort of trawl through every single thing that happened. Um, they've got their own reasons why they want to steer clear of, of dredging up their own memories. Um, but, yeah, you're right. They're, they are, they're, they're just little tidbits that, that allow him to sort of reel off to the next person, the little tiny little clues that that um, don't quite add up to a, to a whole picture. And I quite liked that kind of you know, that sort of sense that there was always something that was just out of reach. And I think, you know, like I'd read a lot of um, Patrick Modiano, who's, you know, the great French kind of sort of existential detective novelist, you know, and his his stories are always about, you know, um, kind of people who are sometimes detectives or sometimes just kind of a bit lost in their own lives, sort of searching for some something that they can never quite find. Mm. Yeah, I don't know, I think... I think there's, um, yeah, there's there's something true to that. When it, whenever it comes to trying to piece together the past, there's there's never going to be a full picture that you're going to be able to assemble. And also the futility of that as well. He's in fact missing what's in front of him while he's doing that. There's a, this is the ultimate kind of way of avoiding your life <laughs> is to bury yourself in in one that you know that had some meaning for you, but actually isn't the point. I think that that's beautifully kind of described yeah. in this section yeah no that's true and i think i don't know that thing, that question i think is really interesting like what is what is our life is our life just this present moment or is it you know is it all sorts of other things so you know there's a sense in which yes his father is dead but also without a kind of reckoning with his father he he can't sort of live in his you know reckoning with reckoning with what happened to his father he can't sort of live in his own 
present. But then you're also right, you know, that he is sort of sabotaging, sabotaging his own life for this kind of dream. And I think I've been really, um, yeah, fascinated in my own way, in my own life, I guess, by that question, you know, like how we, how, you know, how important memory is, um, but also how, how important it is to be kind of present in your own life. And that, I guess, question comes up again sort of in a slightly different way when in the second part, um, Vincent, yeah, Vincent is sort of, is, is, is asked to sort of forget the past, that he's told that the past is really just smoke in the head and that all there is is, is this right now. Yeah, which uh, obviously brings us to that second section. Suddenly we're in, um, you know, the, the kind of style that you're using. How would you describe the style that you are using? It's kind of a, a close third person um, that you're, you're in and it's either from the perspective of Vincent as he's known or um, Kamalatva as he becomes when he joins uh, the very well-known cult of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh uh, or Osho as he latterly became known which um, I think anyone who's seen Wild Wild Country which was up on Netflix for a while uh, would be familiar with or if they lived through that period um, this section really kind of explores someone uh, trying to find themselves by getting lost, I guess. Yeah, um, yeah. so you're right. It is a close uh, third person um, from Vincent's perspective, Vincent being, being Joe's father from the, from the part one. Um, yeah, I suppose he sort of stumbles upon the ashram, Vincent, Vincent um, in, in 1976. He, he meets someone and, and they all, you know, as happens when you're travelling, they say, you want to go down there? And you say, OK, sure, why not? And and that's um, how he gets there, but then has a kind of quite a momentous experience there. So, I mean, I, I think I've been been really interested in in Bhagwan as a Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh as a figure for a long time. Um, but I also wanted to, yeah, like I, I know that there's a kind of a cheap obsession with um, cults in some ways, which has a lot to do with watching cults fail and um, I, I think that can be pleasurable and, and I think um, lots of people feel that but I think there's sort of something deeper there you know like there's a kind of some sort of disavow that people have when they sort of um, watch these attempts at other kind of organizational techniques or other organizations sort of fail and there's a, there's a sense in which lots of people think about cults think you know, how dare you? The audacity of trying to arrange a different kind of social order is is um, is something that that people are sort of a bit frightened about. And I think um, I didn't want to I didn't want to write that. Um, I wanted to write something that was true to the experience for a lot of people, a lot of the people that I'd spoken to as well, which was that that experience over there was a truly transformative experience and one that remains um, really important. Um, but I also I also did want to um, to sort of flag that it wasn't all 
uh, wonderful. There was there was some, there was a dark side to it as well. Absolutely, and I think you do really capture that. What what's kind of really obvious in this section as well is that there it doesn't seem as though for the people that that wash up there, there were many other tools. They're escaping a world that that didn't encourage them to express, you know, ideas, emotions, um, anything outside of the norm, um, to unearth the things that that you know, created the problems in their lives. Each person you introduce is someone who's trying to escape something or who has had some kind of damage um, and they're seeking. And I guess what you're sort of seeing, I guess, right from the beginning is that that is a, that is a very human impulse. And I guess in a way this gave them a sense of hope. Um, ultimately how it ends is not great, but <laughs> um, which is obviously um, something that a lot of people obviously already aware about that particular cult um but you know particularly for this character they didn't really seem to have any other outlets and were in that very fragile state this did offer some kind of a an outlet a, a form of or a way to perhaps you know it's no accident i guess that he's named um something that means tenderness because that's what's been lacking for him yeah, that's right. I mean, what what was going on there um, at the ashram in the 70s was sort of the product of a few different things, but one, one of them was the sort of human potential movement, which was sort of a kind of um, an array of different sort of therapeutic and, and sort of spiritual techniques that um, developed and rose to popularity during the sort of 60s and 70s, um, mostly in the States, but across the West, really, um, combined with... Um, what was yeah? What was Bhagwan's sort of pretty idiosyncratic kind of take on on sort of Buddhism, really? Um, so it was uh, a, like a, a kind of pretty wild um, combination at a time when there was there, there weren't the sort of um, kind of regulations that you would probably or oversights that you would probably hope for in a, in a situation that got as kind of intense as as this one. Um, but I also think that you know, like in the in in the seventies, the, there were there, there were not the kind of therapeutic um, possibilities that there are now for people. You know, um, so this was a different time, and this was these were kind of pretty bold attempts to live in a way that was kind of richer and truer, and you know, something that did justice to the the miracle of being alive on earth you know that idea of of transcendence again sort of seems to play out across all of the sections of this uh, of this book which is something that you know i guess we don't talk about necessarily in in modern kind of discourse but it is in fact uh, a human quality that we want to make life feel like more than its component parts that sense of of it you know, of being, of wonder is such a hugely important thing, whether you attach that to spirituality or not. And in a way, you could see Joe's quest to to discover more about his father, to create this great mystery, um, you know, or mythology of the man um, is a kind of form of, of transcendence of making a life worth more than what he saw of it. And again, the more direct version of that with um, with Bhagwan's cult where you're really getting this sense of life being so much more than than you were originally delivered yeah no absolutely I think I think it's a yeah it's a tr- it's a tricky subject um, to talk about in in public I think people shy away from 
from discussions of, of this sort in some ways. I think people are very suspicious, rightly so, I think now of gurus as well in the, in the, in the West. Um, and in, in some ways what's happened kind of recently um, in within sort of kind of wider Buddhist circles is a kind of critique of the whole idea of the guru from kind of Western Buddhism. So that's in a, in a way a kind of positive that's a thing that's been um, been brought to the tradition of the kind of unimpeachable um, leader. You know, this idea that you you have a leader that can't make a mistake and is actually doing all sorts of horrible things behind mm-hmm. the scenes. But yeah, you're right. Like this is a this is a a kind of a thing that we sort of dress drastically and um, yearn for, and that capitalism absolutely cannot cannot give us. Yeah, that kind of leads us into the last two sections of the book, and I'll just quickly touch on those. Abby, who is a um, friend and, I guess, fellow Ashrami with uh, with Vincent in the 70s, becomes a character himself in a, in a small section that's written as a sort of monologue, and it, it barrels along. You're not quite sure if it's a conversation that he's having with Joe or if he's actually in his own head, and you're really playing with that that idea. You get a very distinct, as you've said, um, move between these sections where you really feel like you're in a different voice. Uh, how have you kind of, you know, why did you hit on that sort of style for this particular character? Oh, that was, it took a long time to find the right way to deal with that. I had a long section where, you know, where, where Joe goes to India and, and finally tracks down Abby and they have sort of long conversations in, and and in this from, from Joe's perspective. And it didn't work. It was for a whole range of different reasons. And then I had a long section that I wrote where it was actually from Abby's perspective, but much more kind of lucid than it, than it is in the final section where Abby's sort of travelling around India. Um, but uh, that didn't work either. And, and I, you know, I just remember getting the, getting the notes from my editor saying, this is not working, <laughs> this is not working. And going, ah, oh, shit! What am I going to do? You know, like really, like feeling like I just, I was, I was all out. Like I felt like I'd given everything, and I had to go back and give some more. And, and so then I, um, I don't know, like what, something happened. I went. I remember I watched um, Tarkovsky's Stalker. And it was raining, and I went out and stood in the rain, and then it suddenly, it suddenly sort of came to me that it needed to be a kind of like stream of consciousness monologue from Abby's perspective in a kind of, a kind of hallucinatory, um, kind of, um, sort of dreamlike, um, yeah, monologue, I suppose. And it sort of just poured out and, and it was actually probably the most pleasurable part of writing the whole book was the, really the four or five days when I got to, when that just came pouring out because it was, it was all the research that I'd done over such a long period of time, speaking to so many people, reading so many different, so many different accounts of those days. And it, it, it was all there when I needed it and, it and it sort of came out. And, you know, in some ways I'm sort of fondest of that part, even though it's the sort of the, the least in, important part of the book, it acts as a kind of important sort of structural hinge and, 
Yeah. And it does give you, like, you know, I guess, uh, as you say, that sort of satisfaction of, like, getting the kind of background story, I guess, that you, you can't do when you're inside the character's experience, which I'm sure, as you've said, is a quite great delight for a writer to be able to actually say, oh, my God, I did all this research, now I can use it or something. Um, but also th- there was a... There was a, you know, I got a real sense of that. Um, you know, he's a, this is a character that earlier on is really reticent and suddenly you're just getting this absolute blurting out of everything that's in their head. Uh, and I think that that, f- that felt like something that you might be on the receiving end of if you, if you did go searching for, your, you know, your parents' kind of compatriots from the 70s who were maybe, you know, not 100% in the brain and um, they're just giving you all this sort of stuff. Like, I mean, I felt like that did have a sort of authenticity to it in elements uh, as well as being quite a a useful device. Yeah, no, absolutely. No, I felt felt, um, authentic to me. Um, I suppose, yeah, you're right. Like it's, it's a number of things at once. It has, it has its kind of, its uses within the, within the narrative structure, but it's also, yeah, I guess a, a person trying to sort out their own life in lots of ways, trying to trying to um, figure out what it is they think at the same time, going back over memories that are that are not clear anymore. You know, sort of taking kind of stock of a life in a way. So, yeah, I think there's there's lots of things going on in that section, and I and I do like that kind of um, the ability to tell a to to, to write a kind of poetic kind of voice that's not necessarily grammatically correct at the same time there's a there's a real pleasure in being able to do that and that leads us to the final section which is uh, set in the kind of near future when uh you know it seems kind of climate change and sort of some kind of quite draconian regulation are in place i'm not sure what time frame you wrote this in but certainly uh, for those of us living through now we are you know getting a sense of what doom feels like <laughs> Um, so it, it did feel I did feel a great kinship with the final section. This is a world quite damaged by climate change. Um, you know that we're following a character who, uh, you know, also has some really complex relationship issues with her own father, who we've met earlier on, uh, and that's a, it's sort of a it's I guess the bookend to the the original perspective is really the daughter and what happens with her and I felt like this offered some real satisfaction because even though it was a a quite kind of dire landscape in many ways there wasn't like a seed of of hopefulness to it yes yes there there was and I'm I'm glad that I was talked out of writing a really totally um apocalyptic ending that I that I did have in mind for a little while um uh yeah you're right I was right also I was writing that during during, I guess, what would have been the first lockdown. I started it then, although I think for a long time I had the idea that it would end in the future. I, I kind of liked that idea that it could be a, a sort of sci-fi novel, in a way, to mirror all lots of the sort of filmic sci-fi references that that go throughout. But also I wanted it to be a, a pretty smooth um, transition into a... I didn't want to make a, a kind of sci-fi kind of section which was all about like naming the you know the different technologies necessarily or you know just sort of like fact checking all the different things that would have happened in the you know that might happen in the in the future i wanted it to be you know recognizable and and realistic even with a few little kind of like just touches here and there just to signal that it was that we'd moved my my interest was much more in the way that that gives you a sense of time passing rather than necessarily in my creating an authentic 
um, kind of plausible vision of, of what is actually going to happen in the future. I want to I delve in uh, a little bit more into, uh, you know, how you write a kind of portmanteau novel like this and also, you know, the, the way that you can, uh, I guess, experiment more with form or think about things in a way that aren't necessarily going to neatly fit into a genre code or... or you know, things of that nature, because I think a lot of people do wonder how literary books are written. This book, as we talked about it, you know, at length throughout this show and at the top of the hour, really does kind of feel like a portmanteau of many different styles and, and ideas being woven together. You're playing with perspective, you're playing with uh, tense and really kind of putting it all together into a united whole. What I'm interested in asking is for those who are kind of not familiar with, you know, I guess the, the literary form, who maybe think of creating a book as finding the plot points and working out how everything fits together, how do you embark on creating a work like this? What are the kind of influences that you draw on? What were the things that motivated you to kind of think in a way that uh, took you in different directions? Uh uh, that's a big question. Yeah, okay. So um, I guess one of the things that I, um, I, I, I guess I just start with are mostly just memory fragments, um, sort of little, little things from my own life that are sort of not quite present in my own consciousness. So I think learning how to, um, to isolate and think about those sorts of half-thoughts that we all have all the time and to find the ones that are kind of resonating. And often they, they come from, you know, from childhood or from early life. They're these kind of image events that might be dreams or that might be memories or that might be sort of, sort of photographs or that might be all sorts... Anyway, they could be all sorts of things, but, but they're the ones that kind of have, a, I suppose, a radiation, to use a, a word that comes up in the book. Um, and so for my own... Um, from, in my own case, for this book for instance there was a bunch of um a bunch of memory fragments one to do with um something my my dad told me before he died which was that he um he'd been married before before I was born to someone to someone other than my mother which was a, which was sort of news news to me uh, at the time and and he died a few days later so that was um something that um I I guess I had as a as a a kind of fragment in the back of my mind. Um, some of the other fragments, I suppose, were, were kind of really early memories and things to do with my dad's friends. Um, and then, and then a, a thing happened, I suppose, which I, I used in the book, which was that I, I did go to the funeral of a friend who had the same name as my own dad, and that experience, I suppose, triggered something as well. So... Um, there's all of that stuff. I, I guess there's there's a bunch of other um, influences that I draw on, like endless, actually, amounts of influences. Um, just a lot of you know, a lot of reading. So from, from in, in in all sorts of different types of um, types of books. But one thing that um, always stuck with me was was something that Ferrante, um, Elena Ferrante said in her Paris Review interview about where to begin and, and she just spoke about a question that, um, that young writers might ask themselves and they might think that the most urgent question is 
you know, what are the experiences that I can narrate? You know, what are the things that have happened that I can write about? And she says that that's, that's actually the wrong question. She says the most important question is, what are the words? What are the what is what are the, the what are the rhythms of the sentences? And what is the tone that will best suit the things I know? So, I guess for me, I, I identify that because it's sentences more than narrative that really excites me. Tiny fragments, and then I sort of join the fragments of memory with the fragments of sentences, and kind of go from there, sentence by sentence. And there is, you know, there is a narrative here, I guess, that um, that literature plays with these more gentle narratives that are kind of more based on ideas and character than they are on that as a necessarily driving force. Although the first half of the book does have quite a drive to it, this quest is driving you along. So there, there are those devices being used. I did think it was quite funny that there's this reference to one of, uh, one of Joe's dad's friends is a, a kind of quite... Um, very, very, very small filmmaker who made these very experimental films in the 70s uh, or a bit later, I can't remember exactly when, uh, which were which kind of started off with a particular narrative and then just fell off the cliff into everyone coming out from behind the scenes, uh, all of the, the kind of crew from the film and sitting there dropping acid and uh, basically talking about life and experience. And I do think that's one of those kinds of things that, that writers do in the middle of a book to sort of <laughs> have a go at themselves or, you know, the art of creating as well. I, I wondered if that was put there as a kind, as, you know, as that sort of a, a marker. Um, yeah, maybe sort of semi-consciously. I mean, that film that that filmmaker made was based on a real film that's called Delmas, which was made in the early 70s by a guy called Bert Dealing. And it, you can go and watch it, and it is a really... It actually is a fa- kind of fascinating film about a it's about a kind of cop trying to track down this guy who's mis- called Mr. Plastic, who's um, feeding LSD to all the children. And, um, you know, children. By children, I mean, you know, young adults. And uh, the, the film does sort of descend into this kind of weird documentary where they all sit around and discuss what to do next in the film and lots of them are on acid and lots of them are dancing <laughs> dancing around in the fields. Um, and it's kind of amazing and, and ridiculous and I actually really enjoyed it. But um, you're right, there is, a, there is a, I guess, a sense in which um, one of the things that you, you're sort of always... Uh, anyway, I am anyway interested in while I'm writing is you know, why Why am I writing this and how, you know, how am I writing it? Those questions are always kind of live, I suppose. So, you know, the quest in some ways is really, the, you know, the, for the writer is always the quest for the book, even if the, the characters are questing after a, a kind of missing person. The, for the writer, there's a sort of similar parallel quest, which is this quest for, like, <laughs> the meaning of this book, which, which you don't, I certainly don't know when I start, you know, what this book's about. Well, Miles, thank you. It's been such a delight to have you on the show for so long. Uh, We have pretty much run up against the end of it. Uh, Thank you once again for for talking to me about your latest book in Moonland. Thanks, Mel. It's been a real delight. Thanks a lot. That was Miles Allenson, uh, whose book in Moonland is now out through Scribe. Uh, You can also get a hold of his earlier book, Fever of Animals, if you have a little bit of time on your hands and want some additional reading material. Independently yours, Triple R.
102.7. Hi, this is Mel Cranenberg. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Backstory, a weekly radio show exploring books, stories, the craft of writing and the people behind the lines. Backstory is broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia every Wednesday. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website, Facebook, Instagram or Twitter.